Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Once Bitten podcast. Joining me today is Titus Gable. He's the author of the book Free Private Cities. And they organized the conference that I've been to the last two years. You might have heard me talk about it on the show. Peter Young has been on the show talking about it, as has Tim Allen. Titus is joining us today. And it's called Liberty in Our Lifetime. It's going to take take place this year, 1st to 3rd of November in Prague. So look out for ticket sales on their website and use the code BITTEN to get yourself a 10% discount on those tickets. It's a brilliant conference. It's really great for Bitcoiners to go and meet the other people in the freedom-focused-minded space and see what other projects are going on. And I hope you enjoy this rip with Titus because... I've listened to him on some other podcasts. Uh, he's been on Kvan's podcast a few times before. Uh, a lot of Bitcoiners are gravitating towards this idea of, you know, citadel life, and that is what Free Private Cities is all about. So there are even a few places around the world that can be plugged into, which we discuss. And uh, Titus, yeah, he's, he, he's led an incredibly interesting life. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode and, and reach out if you want any further information or go and listen to their own podcast hosted by our boy Tim Allen, uh, the Free Cities podcast. Anyway, before we get into the show, please make sure you're stacking Bitcoin where you can and when you can. Do please make sure you only use Bitcoin only companies when and where you can. In the US, you've got Swan, and in Europe, you have Relay. That's R E L A I. And if you use the code Bitten on both of your signups there, you will get a, uh, a $10 free for Swan and Relay will save on commissions each time you purchase Bitcoin after you've set up your dollar cost average. Both teams offer education with Bitcoin. They want you to hold your own Bitcoin. They will help you through that process. They will set you up with a hardware wallet and make sure everything is safe. And they have a white glove service for high net worth individuals and business owners and much more. WasabiWallet.io is the place to go if you want to try your first coin join. It is set up to do that automatically. Head over to wasabiwallet.io and check out their education around this topic as well. Bitbox02 is the last stop shop for your cult storage. So you stack, coin join if you want to, and then Bitbox02 for your cold storage. The Bitbox guys and Wasabi guys and Relay are all going to be at the conference in Madeira, 1st to the 3rd of March. Use the code BITTEN get your discount on those tickets, get across and meet the plebs and stand face to face with these people and learn more about their services. Mempool.space is the place to go to check out the mempool, of course, what's going on on the Bitcoin blockchain, how much are the fees currently, and how are you thinking about managing your UTXOs. If you go back a few episodes, you will find an interesting episode there with Daz talking about UTXO consolidation. Finally, get on Orange Pill app, Find your plebs, make sure you're adding your events. A quick shill for Simon from uh, the Bitcoin events team. There is going to be a meetup, small little conference at Colton FC in Nottingham. So 
Make sure you look out for more details there and enjoy this rip with Titus. All right, Titus, how you doing? Great to see you. Yeah, hi, Daniel. Good to see you again. Uh, I'm I'm doing well. Excellent. Well, apologies to, to yourself and to the listeners because Lauren is not with me. Uh, I know you've met uh, the family at the, the conferences that uh, you've been kind enough to include us in. And she usually asks the first question on each show, but uh, she's, she's not around at the moment. So hopefully we'll see you again in Prague this year and she can come up and, uh, and ping some questions at you in person. But uh, I, I'm going to have to handle all of the questions today. And I know the listeners are probably tuning out right now. <laughs> yeah, no, um, maybe we can really then have her uh, having the first question in, in Prague or for whatever uh, um opportunity and uh, Prague really has developed into a meeting place of the free cities movement and people who want who are looking to for alternative uh, ways of living together under the I would say umbrella of more freedom right you have also a lot of collectivist ideas but in Prague the freedom crowd is coming together and the people who not just want to to complain and making theoretical uh concepts but but doing things and this is something which is extremely important in my view like you are doing things when it comes to education homeschooling and things like that and and we hope to 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 get moving the big tankers which is societies and um society structures yeah for sure and we'll get into all of that uh, i want people to 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 learn a little bit more about uh who Titus is. Uh, many of the listeners would have heard of your book, that have heard of you on, on other interviews and other podcasts. I remember the first time I learned about you was uh, with Kayvan Devani, actually. You were on his show, uh, another, another great Bitcoiner and fan of Austrian economics and freedom. Uh, but let, if you don't mind, if, if we can just dig into a little bit about you know, what, what, what made the man, you know, what, uh, where, where were you, if we, if we, if we dial back the years, uh, what what were you studying before you entered into the big wide world? Where where did you grow up? What what did uh, a young life for Titus look like? Yeah, um, yeah. Let's go back further. As I'm the son of a military officer, uh, a lieutenant colonel, and uh, a, a school teacher, so the perfect statist, as you <laughs> as you like it, right? <laughs> yes. um, and I was really um, grow. I grew up in 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 Germany. I'm German born. My parents are both from Germany. Basically, both uh, had to leave their birthplace after World War II. So my my father is or is is from Görlitz, which is mm, partly Polish today, and he's from what is today the Polish part. Uh, he was very young, uh, seventeen, a soldier, and uh, get got drafted in the last months of World War II, but luckily survived but the whole family decided then let's meet somewhere in the west we have an uncle there and they're meeting them my mother was born um also before world war ii she was a small girl and it turned out that they are a long period of teachers a uh, long dynasty of teachers um and they they couldn't remain they didn't want to remain in the communist part of germany so they went over to the western part in the 50s which was still possible the the, the big wall was only built in 61. Ah, so before, okay. a lot of people left 
communist Germany, East Germany, and that's the reason why they built the wall, right? Uh, because too many people left, including my mother and her family. So and so I grew up in Western Germany, uh, was born in 67 and uh, was was certainly from for many years a big supporter of the of the West German democratic system. I also went to the army um, during the Cold War, became a tank command commander and also a reserve officer at that time. And then when I was about I don't know, 19 or so, I was more involved in politics than first the, the conservative views. I didn't even know what, what libertarianism or classical liberalism is or was at that time because nobody was telling you, right? It was a really gatekeeper society telling us. I remember when I was asking at school at the age of, I don't know, 12 or so or 14, something like that, uh, about the Manchester... Uh, industrial revolution in England, and uh, and I said, and the teacher said, yeah, and and there was no state rule. It was a laissez-faire system. Everybody could make a contract with the worker, uh, with the employer, and everybody else. <laughs> and I raised my hand. And I said, this is a good. It was a good thing, isn't it? No, not at all, because the the um, industrialist, the employer, he is. Uh, he's using his strong position exploiting people, right? Oh, of so course, the, 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 greedy, the... the greedy capitalist, right? That is, yeah, no, uh, the, he's, he's the stronger party in the transaction and mm. therefore it, it it shouldn't be voluntary. <laughs> that, that was basically the the main idea in the whole West at that time was in the 70s, 80s, right? So, and I said, okay, uh, let's. Go. it took me many, many years to find out that this was bullshit and that, that the whole... Western idea of no, there is not the end of history. Sorry to say that. If you are expropriating people by majority vote against their will, this can never be the end of history, right? Never ever. If any system that takes away from third parties and and or takes away from you and give it to third parties without your consent or without your initial consent that there's a group of people that can make these decisions, this every system will fail eventually, right? Because it's based on exploitation. And I mean, the idea alone that people think that this could be the end of history showed me years later, right? How completely wrong uh, this whole discussion is going. And mm. the whole establishment is completely wrong on that point. So, and then, but it took, again, it took me seven years. I studied then law in, in Heidelberg, famous university, uh, made a PhD in international law. I started working as a lawyer the first years, but after some years, I thought, okay, this is maybe not really what I want to do until the end of my life. It was kind of, I wasn't satisfied working for other people, right? And especially many things, you would never go to a lawyer, which my clients came with things, right? And so... I switched to industry at first. I said, okay, I want to become a manager in the industry and in our region and in the Heidelberg-Mannheim area, biotech was was the, the the hot big thing at that time. It was uh, late 90s. And so I became a manager in, in a biotech company uh, for, for law, of course, for legal things and for uh, human resources, interestingly, right? So, and eventually I, I, I went up the ladder and um, became then 
a kind of leading manager in in the company and um uh the um, um company like many biotech companies had some financial issues um because they were all not making money right and if if the investors were not willing to to fund you and they had significant problems with uh ip against existing companies so I thought I I've, I saw that that this is not going to work, and then um, I started as a, I would say a manager and helped somebody to build up a, a family office investment company, and over that I found out that resources is the next big thing. That was about early two thousands because nobody was doing um, mining. Uh, geology, uh, mining, engineering at that time any longer, not even studying, right? The biggest mine, German mining company, they had a lot of mines all over the world. They, they decided that mining is, is a dead business and they became a tourism company, which is called TUI, which is quite large, right? But nobody yep. knows that they were a mining company. Back I then. had no idea. Yeah, so did, but this was the was was basically the the mood of the times, and then I said, look, here's the thing: mining is totally cyclical, and then now you have China with all these extra demand, and at that time China was accountable for ten percent of all world metals, so they were demanding ten percent of the base metal production of the whole world. Today it's twenty five percent, right? And that is only twenty years. So you you could and that, that was relatively easy to foresee because it was written in every newspaper. And I said, okay, if there is not enough supply because nobody wants to do mining any longer in the West or thinks it's a dead business, and there's a obviously growing demand from especially from China, then there's only one solution: prices will go up like this. So why not starting a mining company, right? And so and so I talked my my investors into that, or the investors in this family office, um, and uh, eventually they found out. Yeah, we have connections to some people who are in the in, my, in the mining business. It was a um, Canadian German family. They had gold gold projects and oil and gas in gold in Canada and oil and gas in Kazakhstan. Very interesting stuff. And that brought me into the sector and. We were also lucky. I mean, it was kind of a beginner's luck when when we first heard a presentation of one of their projects. And I said, this is great, right? And it, it was called Osisco. And eventually I I told my main guy, main investor in the family office, we should take the whole financing around on our by ourselves, right? But eventually he took half of it. And um this company became one of the 10 biggest gold mines in the world <laughs> wow and i was also a member of the board so i got some options so that pro probably brought me my for my first million right so and and from then on i until today i continue to be part of the resources industry so i'm a kind of if i say i'm a miner today people think i'm mining bitcoin <laughs> 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 but back then people were thinking about hard rock yeah <laughs> right and um and that is uh that is true and um by the way i found out over many 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 years of doing business that the the, the most easy and most liquid markets are gold and oil but this, these are also the market where you have the most charlatans and 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 
and the number of projects is just so big, right? Because in both cases, um, you dig out money. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're mining zinc or lead, you're not getting zinc, you're getting a concentrate, which has go to a smelter. And then you get a lot of penalties because it's not pure and all that. But in the gold sector, <clears throat> with the technology you have today, even for small mines, it's easy to produce gold, which is not pure, but it's about 90%. You can directly sell this, right, to the mint or to whoever, whoever wants it. Same with oil. You, you, you drill a hole, you find oil, you're a producer. <laughs> and this is so much more difficult for for any other metal or, or industrial mineral, because what you have is you first have to find somebody who who takes it and all. So uh, that at the same time, I was also involved in politics. I was a member of the classical liberal party, the FDP in, in Germany, it was up to several ministers. I was known to people. I was invited by the government to join their visit when it comes to resources stuff and all that. So I was part of the establishment, you can say. And by by watching that, I, I really found out that this system is not reformable. Impossible, right? There, there are too many entrenched interests. Um, uh, too many people are living from the state and the, the state funds that are <laughs> collected from the people, from the citizens. And all kinds of, of organizations, NGOs, NGOs are, are basically making a living of that system. So even if you have one of my friends who was a, was a minister for economic development, he tried to do changes, right? And he made some, but it was extremely difficult, extremely difficult, even for slight changes. And so I thought, okay, if even willing, good willing people are not, not capable of making changes, then um, it's not going to work, right? And and the other and the other experience I made is by trying to convince people for a period about of about 30 years that freedom is the best thing because it gives us more wealth more quality of living but it also means of course self-responsibility that means you are responsible for your failures which is also a good thing because it makes you more cautious it makes you more adult mm -hmm. and and so far i said okay for this reasons we should really follow the classical liberal philosophers and saying Let's have a minimal state, which is really only take care of security. And for the rest of it, you take care of yourself. Um, and what I found out about 30 years, there's not a majority for that. Never, ever. Right. I know that maybe in Argentina now the tide has turned, but I'm not so sure. Right. So my I, I found out this political circle that um, after a crisis, after war, reasonable people are coming into power. They fix the system in the direction of less state. <clears throat> the moment people have enough money to distribute is going to change. And there's a negative selection of politicians because it's, it's a metier that psychopaths and Nazis are attracted to. 
because they can really be successful there much more than they can be in science or economy because in, in those areas it will be found out quickly that people are just incapable not so in politics right people can blend and they can can make the impression that they are they care and all that so if i put all these together i said okay we have a big problem and we will never convince a majority to my ideas or to our ideas. So what do we do? And fortunately, my company, Deutsche Rohstoff, which I eventually then founded in 2006 together with a partner. So this was basically the time when I was then self-employed. <laughs> and I I stick to the, um, it's an interesting story how this came to me, right? So I was uh, then hired by this Franco-Canadian family eventually and said, Gee, we will want you to you're you're a lawyer. You have now some experience in the resources sector, and you can organize things. Uh, you we want you to be a CEO of our holding company, which is to go public. And I said, okay, that's great. I'm going to do that. And I hired the guy who was already doing these IPOs for other German companies. He was a former director of the German stock exchange, <laughs> and then we. Then we prepared this IPO of this Franco-Canadian uh, or German-Canadian family for about three, four months. And then they suddenly changed their mind and said, oh, we don't want IPO because we don't want to share our secrets with the public and all that. I said, yeah, what do I do now? And then this hired guy from the German Stock Exchange told me, Herr Gebel, why don't you do it by yourself? I said, I'm a rookie, kind of three years experience in the resources sector. I said, okay, if you are on board, because I knew he had access to capital as a former director of the German Stock Exchange, he had a good, he had a good network. I said, if you are on board, I do it. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm on board. So he was on board with one third, I was on board with two thirds, right? So we, I think I put in 400,000, which I had from my gold mine, <laughs> you know the story. And, and he put in 200,000. Eventually, this became a company of, when I left, 130 million market cap. So it was quite successful, right? It's even better now. So, um, and we went to the stock exchange in 2010. And after eight years of being a CEO, this all replicated. Uh, we made most money with oil and gas in the US, not with mining any longer. Um, and I said, okay, it's, now it's boring. And I'm very pessimistic about the political situation in my home country, Germany. That was in 2014, I decided to retire and move with my family to Monaco and work on a new political system. Uh, because as I told you, I, I found out that th this is not going to work and this is not going to end well. And, and so far I said, okay, now I finally have, uh, have the funds that I, not, I do not have to work any longer. So I can really focus on my ideas and I, I basically came up with something which is, if you now in hindsight see, so this is that this not really a big invention. It's just collecting existing ideas and put them together. That's what I did. I said, okay, if the market is really the better thing, if we have competition, if we have everybody can offer a product, and you decide voluntarily if you want to buy this product. If this is a superior system, and obviously it is in the market, the market system is always has proven superior to central planning systems. And they can try it now with eco-socialism. <laughs> the result will be the same. And everybody who's reasonable knows that. And I said, okay, now 
if this is true, you just take that system and transfer it to our um, market of living together or the sector of living together, right? Which means that people like me can start a company. So I offer governance. I offer protection of life, liberty, and property. And you, Daniel Prince, you pay a defined amount by, per year for that service. And then we make a real contract, not a fictional social contract, a real service contract. I say, I provide you protection of life, liberty, and property. You pay me $1,500 per year for that. And if there's any issue, we go to outside arbitration. Uh, if there's an issue between us uh, uh, about the contract or miss, uh, uh, I would say miss um, performance or whatever you you claim. So, and that is the the whole idea. It's it's transferring the service idea, the voluntary. Of course, it's a voluntaristic, libertarian idea, but you can also offer all kinds of products. You can say, okay, it's not just protection of life, liberty, and property. It's also universal basic income, social security. But of course, then it's probably much higher price you will have to pay to be part of this system. So this is um, this is one thing. And the other thing I found out is that from a philosophical standpoint, the only justifiable state actions are protection of life, liberty, and property, because this is the only thing everybody's interested in. Even a criminal is interested in not being robbed again, right? If he's leaving his house or killed or be killed. And so I said, okay, from a physical, why this? Because for all other areas, we have different opinions. Right? So why should we force people to something they do not want? And that's all. That Then the idea of free private city was born a private company is protecting your life, liberty, and property. You look at the contract and say, I like it, and then I can move into that if I admit you, but normally that shouldn't be a problem. And if you don't like it, you just stay where you are. So it's completely voluntary. It's it's an offer. It's a kind of, a, I want to create a supermarket of, um, of sys systemic offers for living together. And this is my part of my product, my small, tiny product for the free private city. Um, I know the big problem is, okay, how do we get the land, right? Because in the autonomy, because the whole thing is distributed amongst states. And this is the more difficult issues. Um, it, it, it goes a bit easier maybe today than 100 years ago because we have the special economic zone uh, trend. And we say, oh, we are kind of special economic zones, a bit more autonomy. And that's what, what I'm working on now since I wrote the book. I finished the book in 2018. Uh, and later I helped the people in Prospera to create their first legal structure. Um, by, by the way, I was chief legal officer of Prospera between 2017 and 2019 until the government approved. Uh, and then I, I found my own company to replicate the idea of free private cities all over the world. That's my life in a nutshell. In a nutshell, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it's so much to to ask you about. Um, and I think the the plebs listening would uh, would scream at me if I didn't bring you back to being a tank commander. Emily, like, what? Uh, yeah, I'm coming. To, I'm coming to live in your citadel, Titus. As long as you've got a tank in your garage and you can protect us. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite old tank. Um, 
It was an M48 in the German version, A2 GA2, which uh, which a better cannon. And um, but that was here's the thing. I mean, when the West German army was founded, right? They they had no tanks because all the tank capacities of World War II they were either destroyed or or, or taken by other countries. So they had to start with U.S. tanks, right? So no more Panzers. <laughs> No more Panzers were you American Panzers. It's only in the 60s that they started Leopard 1. And then these M48s, the big, really large tanks, uh, they were have been in the Korea War and 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 that uh, and, and and later Vietnam Wars and distributed to a lot of allies of the US. But they were basically then driven out by the Leopard 1 and then the Leopard 2. And when I was at the army, it was in the uh, mid-80s. They, they had all three. They had Leopard 2s. The most of the um, Panzer Division still had the Leopard 1. And some of the rare, I would they called it uh, the home protection units because they were um, a, bit, a little bit be, be beyond the, the front lines. Um, back uh, in the hinterland to uh, to make counter attacks in, ca in case of uh, of landings um, of air by paratroopers or uh, such personnel, and um, because you you know there were about 50,000 tanks on the other side of the border from Soviet Union and their allies, and at that that time German army was also heavily equipped with five thousand combat tanks. Um, now they're having I don't know. 300 or so left. So, but at that time, so there were still 650 of those all tanks left, the M848, and I was the commander of one of them. And they had some advantages towards the Leopard 1, which were heavily inferior to the Leopard 2. But um, I did I, I did training also on all three types. So that was the, the good thing about it. And I like I must say I liked being a tank commander. Yeah, and I think you, also, you would have been in your 20s, I imagine. Yeah, uh, even yeah. before, right? It wow. was 19 years when I started, and I was 20 when I was a tank commander. Uh, and, yeah. And That's... then I became a platoon leader later as a reserve type officer. And tank platoon, of course. And then, yeah, this was was interesting. And I think it was, was still a good cause, right? The Soviet Union was definitely an empire of evil, as Reagan put it. And uh, but we didn't know that they even eighty five they they discovered that they will not um, win in a conventional war, and they they changed their doctrine from uh, offensive attacking doctrine to a more defensive one. But nobody knew that, right? So we were still preparing for the big attack with ten thousands of tanks and and that. So that was those times, and then in nineteen nineteen when the uh, when the uh, Soviet Union collapsed, uh, it was one of the, I would say, conditions of, of the Western LS to say, okay, Germany can be unified, that Germany must heavily reduce their army size, right? I mean, we had two armies, right? the East German and the West German armies, also really both heavy on tanks and everything. So that was happening. And my, uh, my unit was eventually dissolved in 1992. And all the M48 uh, epoch was gone, right? They were all there. I don't know what happened to them. Probably they were sold to some African African countries. So, yeah. yeah. And right. this was so, a gasoline 
um, powered um, or petrol powered tank. They were in in the field. They are using one thousand liters for for hundred kilometers. What? <laughs> Every evening, typical American, right? Not even a diesel motor. And, and and every evening when you were on the field, there was a uh, a tank truck coming, right? <laughs> Fill up. That's every, crazy. That's like, totally crazy, right? Yeah, that's that's amazing. And that was that was the capacity that that like a hundred kilometers was a range of one of these tanks. No, no, they had uh, they had about I would say. Thousand liters for hundred kilometers, and the tank was two and a half thousand. So two and a half thousand liters two, of two fuel. large tanks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. on a be. tank. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, you do not want to be riding into battle on one of those things with uh, missiles coming at you. No, it was, Man, like you must yeah. have been so strange times. Like you, 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 you're literally preparing for war. Right, yeah. you, you're expecting an invasion at some point, and, yeah. and that's what you're being told by not just the media, but by your um, your leaders in the military and whatever else. Like it, when you look at you look back at that, I mean, that's a lot, a lot of pressure and stress and trauma for, for a young man to go through, especially to be a commander of a tank platoon like that. That's nuts. Do you ever reflect on that? Yes, certainly. I mean, it, it's it's not that you do not reflect on that, right? I mean, especially you know that there, if there's a heavy tank battle, about say fifty against one hundred tanks, then your probability of not being hit is relatively low. I mean, people think if a tank is hit, everybody dies. That's not true. Mostly, at least some people get out of it. But but being hit is 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 not nice. And I remember even in the training, if you had attacking tanks and you were and and you were through looking through your optics and you see somebody has discovered you and he's putting their cannon towards you then you really get really a feelings right and say we have to be quicker like that and so this is really hot and and i i i've read and talked to to tank crews from world war ii and they really said we, it's always we are so afraid and we're oh. going all right but um, eventually, on the other hand, it's it's also it's it's uh, I mean most men or a type of men who like fighting. I'm one of them. Um, we also enjoyed that time. But uh, at the same time, you know, I mean, it's it's about life or death, right? And good luck that we didn't go to real war, that we didn't go to hot war, but stayed in the cold war. We can say, okay, this is at least something interesting. It's technology. It's 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 large. It's um, and 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 kind of of, of fun to have um, uh, good people around you and 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 all that this this or I would say more antique kind of of feelings where you say this is the small group of people who are fighters and 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 warriors and type of that that is appealing to a young man right but at the same time we we knew that probably better not to go into a real fight because. Our survival probability is not the highest <laughs> as a mm. as a combat soldier, and even in a tank, it's a bit higher than the infantry man, but not significantly. Man, so when the wall came down, what what was going through your mind at that point? Because like the, you've had this whole Cold War period, East mm. Germany, West Germany, completely split. Yeah. You've got your parents were originally from the east side, escaped, yeah. get across to the west side. <clears throat> There's so much 
to unpack. The, and, and then all of a sudden, boof, wall comes down. It, it seemed to happen overnight, you know, like uh, but for us watching, I remember watching the news. How old would I have been? What was the exact year it came down? 19... 19- Actually, 1989, it was clear that it would come down, and the reunification was in 1990. Right, okay, yeah. So I was 13, 14 watching this and really not understanding much at all mm. of what was going on, just like the snippets you'd see on the, the British uh, BBC propaganda news. Uh, you know, <laughs> what what was it like to be a part of that? And did, well, did you... I, I was I was literally a part of it when when I studied I started my studies studied law, and I still was um was there for some training exercises in the military, and I remember in 1988, when we when we heard in the radio that there is a big demonstration in Leipzig in East Germany, and there were never demonstrations; they were always forbidden, right, or only the official demonstrations, and there were one hundred thousand on the streets. And when I heard that in the radio, and we were standing around the radio during that exercise, I knew, okay, it's over now for GDR, for East Germany. It's over. Because people are not... We had some relatives there, and I was allowed to go there in the the early 80s. My father wasn't, because he was an officer in the German army. That was when I was still a pupil. And uh, and I've seen it that it's just... uh, It's not going to work. Right. It was clear that communism is not working. And I was even asking myself in the early 80s, why is East Germany still existing? It, they, it's impossible that they make a profit <laughs> as, as a whole society. And it was exactly like that. It was just some years later that they collapsed. And the same was basically they run out of money. That was why there was not more resistance against the, the change, right? Because... Soviet Union was not supporting them as they had done in '53. where was the first uproar, um, and the other countries also they were running out of money, so they they knew they had to change. There was there was not willing. There was no more will to 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 fight the communist system, um, and the, uh, sorry to defend the communist system by the people who were uh, getting the benefits from it because they somehow knew this. They discovered. It's not going to work, and we know that now. So there was no real will to defend that dying system. And interestingly, years later, I had the same conviction about our system in the West, say, mm. which it's not going to work. No, but it, it will fail eventually. And and at the first time, I was right with, with a delay of several years, and I think I'm right here too. And we. We are seeing that at the moment. But at the same time, I have to say, Daniel, that um, still that was a much better system than the communist system. Yes. And Kofa was was justified to uh, to be a soldier in, in that, that army. Um, eventually, um, they didn't attack. and But if there was zero soldiers, zero people willing to defend, then they would just have come over like they did in many countries in East Germany after World War II, right? Even Bulgaria, they were neutral. They just grabbed them. <laughs> yeah, uh, the Soviet Union just sent their tanks in, and um, and in so far, it's um, it's relatively clear that from time to time you have to defend your values. Uh, the problem is just if your values are questionable, right? Which, of course, at that time I didn't think like that. I was totally convinced about the western democratic system 
um, versus uh, communist thing. And again, I would even say today, it definitely was at that time much better. But unfortunately, our system have also changed to the worse after 1990. Mm -hmm. Yep, a and slow maybe, creep. Maybe one reason is that there's no more competition there, right? So that they think they can do what they want now. And uh, what you have seen with COVID and all that. And I have over the years talked to many people who were in the army, either with me or at a different time. And most of them say we are not. We don't like the way this country is going and we are not willing to defend it any longer. And we it, are. Yeah. Uh, this is really topical at the moment because, um, well, th th first of all, the um, the uprising, uh, the hundred thousand people to hit the street. You know what was keeping them off the street? Was that just pure fear? Was that the Stasi? Yep. Was that everything yep. that uh, right? So the fear just evaporated then, yes. seemingly. I think it was there was a point which may come soon again, where the people were, were just so angry, and they they were seeing that they had no future. East Germany was the country with the highest suicide rate in the uh, homicide rate, in, uh, no suicide rate in the world. Wow! It, and uh, and because people had no future, they had no. I mean, the, the best they could expect is three hundred marks per month, right? And you could you could not really afford anything really substantial for that. Either you became a a party uh, leader, right? And but. No, not many people want to become that, and no people had the possibility to become a party leader. So for the normal, for the average show, it was it was there. There was no positive future, right? There was nothing they could could hope to achieve. Not not really make a better living than than they have now, and and I think eventually the people, uh, some people, as you might have recalled, that they escaped through Hungary. Right, and more and more people were using that path. And some people said, "No, we are not going away. We are staying here." And they said, "And then we have to go to the street and say we don't want to. We don't want that." And every dictatorship is, at some point in time, they are just asking too much from the people, or it's not working any longer. And then it's very quickly <laughs> that things can happen. And I mean, I don't know if you're aware, but at the moment in Germany, again, the the, the farmers. Yeah. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Like, how do you feel? Do you feel the same thing, or is, yeah, do you think this is a bit of a stunt? What What's the actual feel uh, yeah, know, they, among the people? There, I think the people that who are on the street, they and there are people from East Germany who have done. You have done this before, right? Right. And yeah. Now, this isn't our it, first rodeo. Right? The same. The same bullshit is coming again. So a lot of people say this is data uh, two point zero, right? This is uh, East Germany two point zero, what we are currently experiencing, and so people are on the street. The, the the difference I would say to the the downfall of East Germany and the communist bloc is that the establishment still thinks that they are on the right side of history. They think they are the good guys. The the stupid people on the street they just don't understand um, uh, their wiseness. And but this is also. I would say falling apart piece by piece, right? More and more of the, uh, I would say, academics people are getting at least doubts about their own ideas, and uh, but it's still a way to go. I mean, you 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 have to see that that many of of their ideas are just complete bullshit. 
so that there are more than two genders, that mm -hmm. the, the world will die from climate change, then this, I mean, there's climate change, but there's no climate emergency, right? It's, it's, it's just in their heads. But they think this is the truth. And they think it's absolutely not a problem if millions and millions of people from, from Muslim countries uh, are coming into Europe, right? That is, that is their theory. And everything they believe, or that they can make come up with all kinds of, of restrictions of, of what you can trade and mm -hmm. uh, the, how car, what kind of car and what kind of heating system you use, and that will not have any effect on your quality of living. I mean, this is total stupid. Everything they believe, their core beliefs are wrong, and that's why they must fail. But the uh, normal establishment figure in Germany or the normal academics hasn't realized that yet, I must say, from my <laughs> discussions that I have. But they have some initial doubts let's put it that way and in so far this situation is in a way comparable but i do not know if we go back in time if we are now in already in the year 1988 so it's two more years until downfall or if we are only in, in the early 80s so to speak yeah exactly that that yes i i know what you mean because we also we, we all had a lot of hope when we saw the, the canadian truckers rise canadian, up yeah. and, and you know yeah. siege the yeah. the parliament and whatever else and then that was shut down and everybody went home and they lifted lockdowns and no more masks and you know it's gone a little bit quiet on the vaccine stuff and now everybody seems to have gone back to normal right it, it's as if it almost didn't happen which is what they wanted right they just wanted to brush it under the rug and and get rid of that so yeah. I hope that there is sustained pressure uh, in Germany, and um, yeah, I I know that you know the energy crisis there has, has just been, and this is something you would know more about, having worked in oil and gas for yeah. so long. Uh, they were shutting off nuclear power plants. Have been one of the biggest adopters of you know green in in air quotes energy, and you know, what what is the the feel there for? I'm sure you still have a, a heavy network in in that industry in Germany. Yeah. What are those guys saying? What are they seeing? Yeah, I think the, even the majority of people understands that shutting down nuclear power plants was kind of lunatic, especially at the same time saying we want to have less CO2, right? Because what everybody expect, except the green establishment knows is that and this is a large establishment, right? But everybody else knows that you cannot produce electricity at night and if there's no wind with renewables, right? It's not it's impossible. So that means you have to have some backup power plants. <laughs> so but if you need backup power plants plus renewables, that means you have double the cost of a country that only has is using the backup power plants like coal or nuclear for the whole day long production of electricity. It's easy to understand, shouldn't, shouldn't it? <laughs> but obviously not for our establishment figures who would somehow pretend that this is not a problem. So, and the, um, like Ayn Rand said, you can ignore reality, but you cannot ignore the consequences. And the consequences are rising electricity prices. The, con the consequence is a, sh a shortage of electricity. So what's happening is that all the coal-fired power plants are now, um, they also were supposedly to be shut off, but they are now working full force. 
um, because this is the only thing you have, right? I just heard today that yesterday they they accounted for fifty percent of the production coal, right? Wow. And 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 then it's imported. We are importing electricity from from nuclear companies, especially France, right? So so we are shutting off our own nuclear plants and importing nuclear. And uh, I mean, it's it's so ridiculously stupid what uh, the current government is doing. That it, it, and not to be stereotypical, true. but it's so yeah. un-German. It's so inefficient. Yeah. It's so. It's bad business. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, in, a, know, in a way, it's un-German. In a way, it's German that ideology is trumping everything. It's trumping reason, right? And they're willing to fight to the end. <laughs> oh, and, right. and, uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, shocking. Okay, so Bitcoin comes along at some stage in your life, and yeah. you you start learning about that. And I'd love to know, you know, how, why, and where and what your bitcoin rabbit hole story was yeah i mean i was uh, i would say bec becoming a classical liberal libertarian back in uh, early 2000 right and when i heard then about this bitcoin as a private money which fulfills hayek's idea that you privatize the money take away the monopoly for fiat money from the governments in order to have more stability and i said eh, could work I did not understand the blockchain or everything around it. I but I, I said okay, it's a private money. It obviously cannot be replicated endlessly, which is good. Okay, let's put some money in ten thousand euro. In, I bought one hundred Bitcoin in two thousand twelve, I think, so relatively early. <laughs> and yeah, that was that was my thing. But then years. Nothing ha nothing much happened. It was only in, I think, in 2007 or so. When, uh, what, no, what was 2000? Let me see. Let me reflect. 2017 or so. When, 17, when it went, started uh, going right, crazy. Six, yes. six seven thousand yeah. and everybody was, yeah. And, and that's, I used some of this money to fund my 50 year birthday party. I <laughs> rented a castle at the, at the French Rivera here and um, with a big red carpet and 120 people. And it was fantastic. And that was from Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> and nobody can take this away from me um, again. So a lot of people who are, I'm still working with today are really happy to remind that big party. So this was this was thing. And then also I, I, I speculated a bit in, in other coins and all that. But I eventually... Um, think I, I found out that uh, Bitcoin is uh, is the best. So I'm a big Bitcoin maximalist, if you want now, because it's just there's so much. It's economies of scale, right? So it's just the biggest one. Uh, all the, um, the the programming and um, the, the talent is going into that one. And even the problems that you have, the transactions are slow and expensive, can be solved by tricks like lightning systems right and i i think um and all, all what what other people do i think the uh, anonymity that monero is claiming that can be somehow produced um at the bitcoin level too right so you, you mix uh, uh, some of those um um addresses or whatever so um that that is my I, i'm not the biggest expert i must say right so and i'm also doing having some investments in uh 
crypto related funds that are more for the protocols and the applications and and so and but i have no clue on that so i i trust some experts they say we can outperform bitcoin with that things over a certain period um and i i have i'm holding bitcoin um on my own unfortunately i've sold most of my bitcoin of the initial 100 uh back then in 2017 right right all right so yeah nice nice to know that uh but and what I like about uh, you know what you've set up with uh, with free cities, uh, you've attracted Bitcoiners um, that you know Peter Peter Young come across yeah. and uh, I met Peter on Safedine's course, goodness knows when back uh, just before COVID was starting with Tim actually the three of us were on okay. the same course <laughs> uh, yeah so you, so you got Tim Allen there as well he's he's doing the podcast right if anybody's not listened to that they should head over and listen to the free cities podcast hosted by tim yeah you got Al- it is yeah. and you got alex as well um they're the three just off the top of my head that yeah. are you know fully on board with not just austrian economics uh but with bitcoin and also this freedom movement that you you are trying to to push and the, the Liberty in Our Lifetime conference that I've been across to now the last two years, I think you've done it three in total or four, you can tell me in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's like, right, let's get everybody under the big tent here. Let's have all of the libertarian kind of guys. Let's have the, the seasteading kind of guys. Let's have the, the dude that found an island in the middle of a river between Croatia and Serbia, if I'm not mistaken. Let's have people from Liechtenstein. Let's... Uh, Prince Philip was there last year of Serbia when he came out as a Bitcoiner and, mm. um, you know, he's trying his best with his work with Jan 3 to try and get nation states to take a closer look at Bitcoin and, you know, what it could mean for them and their their, their constituents. Uh, it's an amazing conference. So what what do you, what why did, I mean, these aren't easy things to put on. They're, they're, they're difficult, they're costly. Why did you feel that that was the uh, the best, you know, step forward for for free cities? Yeah. yeah, because as you said, it's Bitcoiners are not necessarily thinking about these, or not in the, in the first degree thinking about these ph- philosophically implications of starting societies and and what is the liberal libertarian philosophy and all that. But it's more a, a free step, right? You you are Bitcoiner because you somehow then think that has some merit i want to be independent from state money from fiat money and then you find out about the especially when reading cypherdeen's great book right the bitcoin standard you find out about austin economics and why it it is so as it is and then (laughs) this is the first i was the first step being a bitcoiner second step becoming interested in austin economics and third step is then becoming interested in the free cities movement because what we are doing is kind of and that will answer your question kind of, okay, I mean, we have done it before. I've created a parallel structure without the permission of the of the nation states or the United Nations, and it's successful, right? And it's it's voluntary, 100%, and there's no intermediary. And I said, okay, now we are doing the same in another sector. Um, we're creating parallel structure, which is not subject to state regulation um, or only to a very limited degree. And participation is voluntary. And if it's successful, it will be a completely diff- different system to what we have today and a better system and a more freer system. And and in so far, I think uh, it is natural that what we are doing has an appeal to Bitcoiners. I would say half of 
half of the people that are coming to the Liberty in Our Lifetime conference or visiting the Free Cities Foundation's website, they are they are coming through Bitcoin and um and oh through Bitcoin somebody has recommended that and, and they found out. I thought when I was writing the book or was finishing the book, I said, okay, two things. First, I have to make it happen. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of ideas around. And having ideas and implementing ideas are completely different things. And be I, I'm saying between having an idea and implementing an idea, there are, there are oceans of skills. And I said, okay, I have done it before. I founded a company, several companies even, and made them successful uh, from zero. So I'm the guy who is starting a, um, a free private city, or we call it now international city, as a for-profit business. I'm I'm want to offer that product in the real market, but this is a for-profit entity. And at the same time, I thought, and now we have to reach out to a broader audience of Bitcoiners, libertarians, and just people looking for new ideas. Uh, because more and more people find out in the world that something is wrong with the systems we are living in. And I think this has been tremendously increased as number uh, during COVID, when people were saying, they can just shut me down. They can yeah. shut me out. They can do whatever they want. They, they stop me from traveling, right? And I said, that's not right. And so people are looking, hey, what else is in offer? And that is why I think it's very important to have the Free Cities Foundation and this conference, because as you said, the conference is not limited to my part of the of the market where my ideas are implemented, but it's everybody who has an idea for an alternative system that is, um, here's one, one thing, that, that is intended to create more freedom, not less, right? That this is basically, if you want to become a member, or want to present on that conference, the idea is that you create uh, a structure for more freedom, not for less, individual freedom. And, and not some bullshit freedom, but freedom to do what you want without being forced to something else. And, um, and, and this is this is bringing people together. And I think the what, what many people of the, many attendants said that what they like about the conference, that is basically the only one that's, about real projects and not about theories and and criticism it's about real projects real people are living in real pla physical places or like you doing real things to uh to get out of the education system or whatever you name it right and of course bitcoin is always a topic because the financial world is is a very big part of of our daily life uh and I see that the conference is growing by the year. It is. And uh, yeah, it's it's been great. And learning about all of the different... But what I like about it is uh, I get to meet people um, that very, very freedom-minded, freedom-oriented, doing things, like you said. It's not just pie in the sky. Uh, oh, what if? It, you know, mm. they've, they've, they've built something. Uh, and getting then to talk to them about Bitcoin and just gauging like the the interest that they have and uh, whether or not you know it's even come across their their radar yet, and you get straight into a discussion, and it's not like you know you're, you're yeah. trying to talk to your auntie Gable about it who's just not going to listen. No, these guys are interested because they see 
ah, perhaps here's another arrow in my quiver to add to my, you know, my freedom basket over here. And Mm -hmm. I see Bitcoiners, myself included, being drawn to, okay, where are the, you know, the 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 trope, the the meme, where are the citadels being built? Where might I be able to plug myself into uh, going forward? Where um where am I going to be able to uh you know use my Bitcoin as everyday life or like uh, your your um uh, Free Cities Foundation, you know, if I was to sign a contract, can I use Bitcoin to sign that contract to go and live in a special economic zone or something that's been built? And obviously, we're um, we're way off the idea. I mean, I, I imagine the vision is one day I can pick up a like a a, a two E style um, magazine, tourist magazine, but instead of it being holidays, they are jurisdictions in which I can go and live yeah. and choose from uh, and be able to use my freedom money to 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 go and um, you know buy the service that that most appeals to me and my family at that stage in our lives that is exactly the thing i envision daniel that you have a supermarket right of of, of opportunities to of living together right what i call the market of living together say so okay you have your catalog and say okay there's prospera and there's a international city by tipolis um and and there's another one uh in asia and another one here and then there's uh, in Europe, this this island and and the, and, the, and they, they they like in a in a hotel catalog they say okay what amenities do you have right yeah what price right and you say what's the what's your annual fee and what about the children get a reduction and all that and and that is exactly the world I I want to to get to right there it's it's a much more peaceful world and you have you're getting rid all of the psychopaths and narcissists. Um, uh, at least they cannot do uh, the same damage as they can do now, being parts of governments, right? So and how how long well, do you how how long do you think we are away from this? Because obviously anybody listening is like, you're right. Show me the magazine. I'm down. I, I um, want to start shopping. Uh, it doesn't work like that when you're building a business. You're 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 a few years in. Uh, you've you've reached certain milestones. Uh, what what can you share with us that's happened so far, and and any kind of announcements or? Yeah, so so the, the the, I mean, of course, if this was would be possible uh, easily, that would already exist. Yeah. Right. Um. So the problem is that it's not enough just to buy land, right? Everybody can buy land and start a libertarian campground or Bitcoiner campground or whatever Burning Man mini version. That does not bring you out of the reach of the state and their laws. So what you need is a kind of autonomy within the sovereign entity or even sovereignty to make your own laws, right? This is very, very important because it's much more important than land property or ownership of land. It's two levels. You need the land and you need the autonomy, right? The legal autonomy to do what you want. And buying land is the easy part. Oh, sorry for that. So buying land is the easy part. Getting the autonomy is the hard part. And even the Honduras, where the Honduran government came up with the idea, it took nine years, right, until the first project really came into existence from the idea. And and so far, this is the this is the hard part of it, and it's the dirty end of the stick work, is just 
negotiate with governments, tell them we bring investors, we bring high potential people that otherwise would not come to your place. But in exchange, we need a certain autonomy. We will be here. I, I can now tell you what is has proven to be somehow successful in the initial negotiations with governments is you keep you remain responsible for defense and foreign policy. Um, we are following the international treaties that you have concluded, like labor laws and, and money laundering. And we are willing to apply your criminal code. That is obviously very, very important for governments. I don't think it's it's that important, but if they want that, um, uh, we have to do it. So, and other than that, we can create our own universe. And we need to make a contractual agreement with the government. The government needs to change the law to make that happen. So it's not so easy. You need a majority in parliament in some places, even a, a constitutional majority, two-thirds. Uh, and this is the, the 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 hard work. And then you try to put in all kinds of mechanisms to protect this autonomous island against the very state you have your contract with. Because mm -hmm. if they, there's a new government, they want maybe they say it's all illegal and we want to overthrow it. That's happening in Honduras at the moment, right? Yeah. And um, but at the same time, the legal mechanisms were quite good that were established in Honduras. And they are for the moment holding because they have not dared to send their police or military into the Sede Prospera or Sede Morazan and take everything away. They're making noises and they're making kind of um, things um, in the back office, like telling the, the Honduran banks not to deal with us, not sending the custom officer that they are normally obliged to to do so they ha can import things so it's more these trying to uh with small things to annoy the sedes but they're not openly invading them and at the same time the sede prospera has sued honduras for uh, this behavior in front of the international arbitration court for investment disputes um, and this is possible because this legal mechanism was also uh, one of the protection me mechanisms that was established um, when when making the law. So, um, and you were part of that process, right? Is that what you said between like? Yeah, the law was made before my time, but the right. Um, the, the but they themselves came up with good ideas because the the people from the Honduran government who thought, okay. What's happening if there's another hostile government? I mean, they, they foresaw that, right? Of course, it's happening in Central America all the time that governments are changing and they're all hostile against each other and putting themselves in prison. But I said, okay, here's the thing. If there's an international treaty with another country, then the 10-year period of guaranteed SEDE existence, even if the law is repealed, can be extended to the period that is in this international treaty. And somehow they managed immediately to get such a treaty with the country of Kuwait. And the Kuwaitis wrote, probably was proposed to them, but they wrote in 50 years, 5-0, right? Guarantee. So they they cemented um, uh, some protection mechanisms that are now helping us. What I did was more negotiating with the government about what exactly does the law mean and are you okay with our 
model because originally this was a top-down model, so a Hong Kong type of model. There's a governor or a CEO called the technical secretary. He makes all the decisions, and then there's the state commission approving or disapproving those decisions. We said we don't want that. We want more private governance, more like with the contract, and you know what you have to pay, and that certain uh, rules cannot be changed and all that. And so we we created um, a hybrid model. We took what was there, was given by the law, and put a private governance model on top of that. And there was a city council established and all that. And then we negotiated with the government if they accepted that. And it took some time, but they eventually they accepted the model. And then the uh, the say the second say the Morazan has copied part of those things that that we negotiated with the government. And when the government was um, elected out of office, they told me that at that time there were twenty more applications for CEDES in Honduras. Twenty. And could you tell us what ZDE stands for? The acronym. It's a Z special, uh, special zone for economic development and employment. Right. Okay. Yeah. Z E D. -E. In Spanish. Yeah. yeah. Z -E -D. Yes. So this is the name of the zone, right? You say right. it's a special zone. Called a special C economic zone is what most yeah. people would. Yeah. But yeah, it's right, more okay. than this. the normal special economic zone. Is just some tax reliefs and import export duties are not due. Mm -hmm. uh, Sede Prosper is far more a special administrative region like Hong Kong. They have their own law making capacity and own administration, own police, own courts, right? So this is much more than a standard special economic zone, but special economic zone is at least something that many politicians understand. So we can go to them and say, we want to create a special economic zone plus because there's a tendency in the special economic zone industry to become more autonomous and cover more areas every time. You have Dubai International Financial Center. They have own courts meant with people from London and Singapore. They have they can make own rules based on common law, not on the uh, law of the Emirates or Sharia law. Um, and uh, they have basically an own legal system. And they have been so successful. They've been being copied by, copied by other places. And now Saudi Arabia wants to create a, a whole city that has a different legal system than Saudi Arabia. So you, you can see that there is already a trend from the special economic so zones that are just manufacturing or, or free ports, warehouses, towards autonomous cities with, with own regulation, own everything. So we are not completely isolated in what we are doing. We are just coming from another angle. But I think this is this is the time is now, right, to make it happen because there is some backwinds from what is happening in the world and and we can we can uh, capitalize that so what would it look like for somebody listening now uh, prosper is set up people have mm -hmm. moved there and they've lived there yep. and uh, uh, you know the trouble aside at the moment with the new government coming in trying to challenge the uh, the ZA that was uh, that was put in there let's just sweep that aside for the moment what would it look like for a family man uh, first of all you know he's got to persuade his wife yep. That uh, sure. moving to a Caribbean paradise isn't as bad as you think. You know, it's a, it's still a hard sell to, it, randomly. Uh, but what what would it look like uh, for that person that might have a few Bitcoins stashed away and he's thinking about moving to a jurisdiction to upgrade lifestyle to, yeah. to you know to move away from to retire perhaps early. Um, what what would the process be and what would they be expected to pay and what would they expect to, you know, 
kind of property and what would they be expected to you know um to get what what services uh, in return mm -hmm. so our model is called international cities which is based on the free private city model of course and i can tell you what what has been implemented in the in in the prosper model from those ideas is is for example they were obliged to to ask for a tax because it was in the CDA law, right? So you couldn't change that. So I think they are asking for five percent income tax or so, but you can also pay a lump sum of one percent without making any further declarations. And then you have to pay as a non-Honduran one thousand three hundred US dollars per year per person, right? And I think children are free, but don't nail me nail me on that but it's so it, this is about the range right so if you are you are a couple you maybe get a discount but let's assume it's 2600 for two people and children are free until they are adults or pay not much so this is what you have to pay by per year so it's it's already much better than and you get protection uh uh security uh forces you you get a fair trial if there's an issue uh, there are, there are uh, courts and arbitration possibilities. Um, you get a good infrastructure. It's it's clean. It's safe. Uh, good people around, and everybody is totally connected with the world. So you have also kind of um, uh, how to uh, to say this. So, so people are influencing each other. So ideas having sex, right? This idea that a, a lot of interesting people are coming together. And as Alex Ujori put it. Who is who is uh, uh, active in the Sede Morazan on the mainland, which is more for the workers and not so much like in Prosper is more for the expats. He said, "Well, you just go where a good place is, and eventually all the others will come. <laughs> they will show up because it's just so superior." And you can also see what what's happening in Prospera, all kinds of new ideas with um, longevity stuff. Then you have Bitcoin has an office there as well, one of the Bitcoin providers has, have an, has an office there trying to explain people in Honduras, how Bitcoin works and all that. So it's already beginning. And I think our idea, uh, at Tipolis is to create a model called international city, which is a bit different from each, from country to country, because you have some issues in some country that you do not have in another and vice versa. But the model should be more or less the same based on this ULEX common law system, uh, then some, some side regulation. And once you're approved in one city, you go, can easily switch to the others. So this is the idea for the future. Mm. And, and you are not bound to staying in the Caribbean. So in our model, you can either rent or buy. Uh, there are other models like City Morazan, you can only rent. There is no possibility to, to own property. They have they are following more these um Spencer McCallum Entrecom model where they say it must be all in the hands of one entrepreneur, the the, the property, otherwise we cannot really um kick out bad apples. Uh we think that we can because of the contractual relationship. But this is again, I mean, this is competition, right? <laughs> there are different models for different types of persons, and um there will be um at the one time there is a competition between those uh, those different uh, models and ideas and on the other hand there's also a corporation so we are supporting each other right you know that the Prospera guys are every year at the liberty in our lifetime conference as is the other city right yep. as our project i'll see then sark uh, and and all these upcoming projects 
So I think what, what an interested person should do first is to look at the Free Cities uh, Foundation's website and go to the directory of communities. And there's this world map where you can see, okay, there are some liberty-oriented communities. Some are more intentional communities, only internal regulations, different others have real autonomy like Prospera. And you can click on those and learn about those. And then you can subscribe to the newsletter of the Free Cities Foundation, because if a new project is popping up and you can move, then it will be it will be named there. And they normally they have an own website where it's said, okay, here's our contract. And here's what we have on offer. And here's the price. I mean, this is all still in its infancy, right? We are just starting a new exactly. world, just, just beginning. So don't, don't expect too much. Um, but um, it, it is, um, it is going in the direction that you outlined before. There will be a catalog or a website. There is already a website, uh, and it will get better um, every day and uh, or every month. There's an improvement on that website, uh, the directory uh, for the communities, for the free communities, um, and and there you can have a look and then see. Okay, maybe convince your wife that this one. Do you like this? She, she can have a look, and there will be pictures and all that. So and I you remember can visit, you can visit, right? Make it exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, going going for a two week holiday probably is the, uh, the the best thing to do to begin with. But I remember I had Eric from Prospera mm -hmm. on back in twenty twenty. So to give people an idea, you know, we're already almost four years. Well, and it would have been going before that, obviously. Uh, it does take time. It is slow. But I yeah. did see Dushan, who runs um, the, the Bitcoin Education Center there in, in Prospera under Amity Age. He's doing great work uh, helping orange pilling the, the locals, getting them employment uh, and, um, you know, teaching the, the kids. But now also he's doing a Bitcoin educators camp where people can go. Who's the next wave of Bitcoin educators? Who's going to be the next podcasters, the next writers, the next YouTubers and all this kind of stuff. So there's so much going on and you can buy property there with Bitcoin. And you can now also, once you've opened your business there, you can account in Bitcoin. And this was just announced last week. I yes, saw I heard it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's happening. In front of it, our eyes. It's happening. And I think the good thing ab about uh, Prospera, and they really deserve kudos for that, is that despite this hostile government, they were just continuing what they were doing. They were saying, we are legally protected. We are just making use of our rights. And uh, they could circumvent this issue with the bank and all that. And people are invited there. I mean, if you go there, you still have to consider that they might send the tanks the next day, right? But I think we, uh, I know that there has been discussions with the other parties in Honduras. And they are basically, except that now the socialists in power, the other parties are all, the bigger parties are all open to uh, renegotiate and, and leave, leave the Cedes and maybe do some changes and make a compromise. So we are all hoping that in two years, the socialists are elected out of power and then this can really take traction because maybe they are even open to make a new law. They've repealed the Sede law, but they make, could make a new law. Um, then it's coming back with the 20 applications, right? <laughs> and then 
you have you have a spectrum of of different models that are competing with each other and for for every taste there will be an op will be an offer right so this is the idea and um i think it's great that these things are just happening and and uh, we were very close to a to a similar autonomy in an african state it was the island state of sao tome but uh, we had already a law passed in parliament and a 40 pages contract negotiated with the government and then there was also an election and a complete change in power which was came a bit a surprise but uh, that that is what what can happen and the new ruler is not interested in any of the project of the old government right he's not so much against the idea as such but that is the political risk we have and other I know there are other competitors out there trying to do that. It's just the hard thing is to get the illegal autonomy. And, and this is what takes years and years. And this is things have been popped up uh, in the meantime, because I'm one of the guys with my company, Tipolis, who is probably on the forefront of that. And I have uh, government discussions every month, right? So in, it, even if they say we are totally in support of that, this it's hard to 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 implement, right? Because there's then a lot of opposition and people that have entrenched interests and all that. So this is, but it's I think it's still easier than changing, uh, winning an election in a big country. <laughs> so it, it must be very difficult for you to you you you, you straddle both sides of this fence, right? You you're, you've got one foot fully in like liberty freedom life uh you know live voluntarily but yet you have to face the regulators the policy makers all the time like how that must drain your energy or or does it have the opposite effect like when you go in and have those meetings and you just like you banging your head against the brick wall yeah no it has to be done right i mean it's 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 the it's the obstacle we have to take before a completely new market is opening up to the benefit of all people but be, before we are until we are there we have to play according to their rules right so it, it doesn't make sense to see in my view to secede or to make a revolution or that uh hey do you have you can negotiate those things and it's you, you have to create a win-win situation but on the other hand it's maybe we are just the first generation doing this and maybe we only are successful in in a handful of those projects and some will be destroyed again by by state power but the idea will survive Daniel and uh, this generation is growing up already. The new generation with the idea that those things are happening. The prosper is real, right? Yeah. Morazan is real, and the free cities movement is is real. And so, um, I try as much as I can to to uh, level to to basically make a foundation for the generations to come that they can build upon that. Uh, and that was also the reason why I wrote my book. And um, it's just the new new time is dawning at the horizon. And we are part of that new part. And that makes me feel proud and, and gives me motivation to go into all these frustrating um, discussions and, uh, uh, and endless uh, schedules. It never ends. Right? You never get a 
get a get an answer in time right? and 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 those things so it's it's uh and, and at the same time we have learned from this failure in in sao tome that we are now following several governments at the same time so if if some changes their mind or have an unfortunate election doesn't uh, destroy our business model or our ideas so there are more than enough potential projects which is also a good sign and more and more people who, know about these ideas and our network is much better now than it was four or five years ago so now we are normally introduced on the government level right which is much easier than some students saying we, we have read your book and think it's a great idea let's make it in our country right that is really hard yeah and uh, i normally say hey here's here are our 10 autonomy points now you go to politics and say how many of those you think are feasible in your country and 99% you never heard back from them again, right? So it's just too hard politically. But in some areas it's possible. And if you create a win-win situation, we can convince governments that they should not copy Dubai International Financial Center, but just make something which is the next big thing in special economic zone industry. And, and that is reasonable governments understand that. And um, then if they have a majority, there's a chance, but it's... Also, I think if we are successful now in one or two more locations than Honduras, then it will be easier from yeah. then on. Because then you can point say, we won't just replicate that. Which is why this ruling is going to be so important, right? With this new yeah. socialist government. Because if that is survived and um, like yeah. uh, renegotiated and, every, and it, the whole thing blossoms, it's an even better use case uh, to, yeah, to point we have We have survived the worst case already. So that... Yeah. that proof of concept in a way right absolutely yeah. and i know peter was with us when we met the president of madeira when we were over there mm -hmm. talking to him about bitcoin adoption and education and whatever else within the uh, the community of madeira and he was open to listen at the very least you know and he yeah. was also open to help rahim when rahim was over there shopping around for land um for mm -hmm. to build um self-sufficient communities and things like that so it's happening at the, the highest of levels for sure so I, I guess I, I usually ask the, uh, the last question on each show, if you had one orange pill left to give to somebody, who would you give it to and why? But I'm going to change it a little bit for you because I'd like to know if you could hand one copy of your book, if you had one last copy of your book left to give to somebody and you knew they were going to read it cover to cover and they were going to get absolutely on board with Everything you see, they see your vision. They see like the idea of having that catalog where people can be free and move around. Uh, who, who would you give that book to, and why? Elon Musk. Aha! Straight in there. All right. Absolutely, because he has the financial firepower to make it happen, and he, he has the the understanding, and he has the will to go even against establishment majorities, as you have seen with uh, Twitter or X, right? So he would be the the type of person definitely um yeah that's clear and this is an easy question because he is there right yeah. i mean there are other, other guys like jeff bezos uh the, but and or bill gates but i doubt that they would really maybe jeff bezos but bill gates is probably not he's, he's in the other camp for sure already <laughs> For sure. Uh, Matt, well, okay, yeah. Well, sign a copy and just send it across to SpaceX with his name on it. You never know. It might get into his hands. 
Yeah, probably he getting 100 books a day. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if, if one of our listeners has some context, I think if he he is he would read the book. I think that would do it because he's already thinking in those those lines. Especially, I remember once he said uh, regarding Mars colonization, he said, "No, no, your rules will not apply there. We will make our own rules." <laughs> right there, you go. He's already thinking. Yeah. Already thinking like. Yeah. Uh, free cities okay so the conference i have been informed the the dates are first to the third of november for this correct. year is that correct yeah. and it's going to be in prague at in the, prague, the same same, same location venue? same menu yeah. right okay that is a a brilliant conference so for anybody listening it's the liberty in our lifetime conference and uh peter has assured me but by the time we get this one dropped uh the if the the code bitten should be live again for people to be able to get uh i think a 10 percent discount 10%, on those purchases yeah, probably yeah. yeah very good okay well titus thank you so much for for giving up the time to to come on and, and take us through uh your life really i was completely blown away with the the tank commander stuff uh i hope a lot of people got a value a lot of value out of that as well but i wanted it was amazing to see you know the the times of how they've changed and you know how they're so that they shape somebody's life in in so many different ways and obviously everything that's come before you has put you in this place the book mm -hmm. as well and the the work that you're doing with free cities i can't wait to see what happens over the next 5 to 10 years uh, with all of these ideas coming yeah. together like you said you can't kill an idea bitcoin is one of those ideas free cities is one of those ideas um we need more I, I i think we need more crossing of these two communities so mm -hmm. for all of the bitcoiner listeners get over it's not an expensive conference if i remember uh i can't remember the exact price but the but the prices when they are released they they gradually go up so get them early and use that discount exactly and if you are a young person you get a super discount so it's really not expensive but it's it's the momentum is there. It's there. They can't stop us. And if you really want to get some motivation, go to the conference. Yeah, for sure. All right, Titus, thanks so much. Have a great day. My pleasure. Thank you, Daniel. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode. And thank you again, Titus, for coming on. And yeah, to echo the sentiments that he left us on there, uh, the momentum is there. I, I've seen it with my own eyes the last two years that I've been across the Prague with my family. I've taken my wife and my kids along too, and they really enjoy uh, all of the talks because they're um, they're fun topics. You got people over there that have set up their citadel-style uh, self-sustaining communities, whether that's in Montenegro, whether it's this guy that found the island uh, between Croatia and Serbia, if I'm not mistaken, Liberland, or you, these seasteaders that are building these incredible pods on the ocean in international waters or floating huge floating platforms where you can even you know grow grass and have fields and like there's some crazy ass projects out there which are so interesting to uh, to listen to the we had actually last year the the seigneur of the island of sark and the island of sark is just off the island of guernsey so it's in the british isles there are no cars on this island. Uh, it's all bicycles. And uh, they are really opening up to the possibility of like an e-residency or something like that. They've got, to, they've got to redesign themselves. But he was there to listen. And 
to present his ideas for the uh, the island of Sark. So th th it's cool. It's a cool conference, and we have Bitcoiners, as as Titus himself is a Bitcoiner. We have Tim Allen. We have Peter Young that are there. Tim is running the podcast. Peter is running the day to day for Free Cities, uh, and we have uh, Alex as well. Alex Voss is in there. He's going to be coming on the sh on the show soon. He's just written a book about uh, Bitcoin and freedom and how it plugs into all of these uh, ideas. So these are the citadels that you are looking for. You just got to learn a little bit more about them and, and start shopping around uh, because it's it's only growing. And I, I urge you to look into the conference, put it on your radar, first or third of November, as we discussed at the, uh, the end of the show there, and use that code BITTEN, get yourself a discount. And there's always a good mix of Bitcoiners there. There's always, I mean, the last couple of years, we've had Seb Buddy over there, Stefan Levera, Alex Svetsky, Knuts von Holm, Nico, uh, Andre Loja from uh, the Free Madeira Project. Uh, yeah, so many. And um, yeah, look forward to seeing you there. We hope to be there again this year. Finally, make sure you're stacking sats. In the US, you have SWAN. Use the code BITTEN. Across Europe, you have Relay, R-E-L-A-I. Download the app use the code bitten wasabi wallet learn about coinjoin wasabiwallet.io get over there set up a wallet and do your first coinjoin by default it's set up just to do it for you mempool.space go and check out the pri uh, the price of transactions right now see what's going on in the mempool before you make any transactions and bitbox02 please make sure you're taking self custody use the code bitten get yourself a discount and get across to madeira first and third of march again same code Bitten. Catch you on the next show, guys.